Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, do you have any recommendations for this episode? <laughs> uh, well, people who enjoy this podcast also enjoy uh, Data Skeptic. They enjoy mm-hmm. Partially Derivative. Uh, they you have know good this. things to say about talking machines. I'm, I'm making an educating oh, guess okay. here. I'm doing a little bit of content-based filtering, if you will. I'm okay. I'm guessing we're going to talk about recommendation engines. Uh, so we'll see if I'm right in a moment. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Of course, that's what you're talking about. We are, I always tell you what we're talking about before we start recording. <laughs> <laughs> no, you gave it away. I know. <laughs> Believe yeah. it or not, dear listeners, there is My job is to come end. up with the dad puns. <laughs> yes, and you. I don't know. This one was this one was a little bit better than normal. I'm <laughs> yeah, okay, you keep telling yourself that. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, topic for the day: recommendation engines. Uh, right. This was this was a, uh, yet another listener suggestion from uh, Ben's Feig. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, the other Ben out there. Yeah, just the two. The of only you. other. Yeah. So you were saying that was a content-based recommendation engine kind of suggestion that you gave. Oh, right. So the podcast that I was naming, which I will name drop again because they're excellent, partially derivative, data skeptic talking machines check them out yes Uh, those are all podcasts that are around uh machine learning and data science all right and hey we're about machine learning and data science right we like to think of ourselves as as being in that space as well so content-based filtering would be uh, an algorithmic method that would make use of the actual properties of the items that are being suggested and say based on the aspects of of let's say a podcast that seemed to make it interesting to you, namely that it's about machine learning and data science, can we suggest these other podcasts that have the same attributes or similar attributes? Right. So basically you need someone like a human or some kind of system that understands the content of these different things that you're recommending, in this case, podcasts, to say, oh, these podcasts based on their content are similar and these th- this other group of podcasts are similar to each other. Um, but you can't you can't do that at scale really because machines don't tend to really understand the content. Bingo. And this is kind of in the name content-based filtering. Right. The problem with this algorithm is that it doesn't scale particularly well. So if you were to get a hundred times more users, let's say you're running some kind of service like Netflix or Amazon and you want to make movie recommendations, you get a hundred times more users and a thousand times more movies. Then somebody has to, some poor soul has to sit there and code up mm. all the movies. Mm-hmm. So you got to watch all the movies and decide whether they're chick flicks or whatever it is. That sounds terrible. That sounds, actually, you know, I, <laughs> I, I feel like Pandora did that, didn't they? They did the Music Genome Project. Yeah. They yeah. just paid a bunch of people to sit there and listen to music. And you know, back in the day, I thought naively, oh, that would be a great job. But I think that it's probably, I don't know, if if you're listening to this podcast and you had that job and it was a great job, let me know. But I assume it must be similar to Video Game Tester, where it it sounds like you're playing video games all day, but you're actually just opening and closing a door in a room or, you know, jumping off a cliff in different ways to see if you can, I, I don't know, break the game or whatever it is. Um, sounds much less magical than playing yeah. video games all day. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so content-based recommendation engines, uh, they make a lot of sense to humans like me, but are not necessarily very scalable. Not particularly automated, that's right. 
However, there's another way of making recommendations, another big way, which is collaborative filtering. Mm-hmm. And that scales beautifully. So where content-based filtering is all about, uh, I'm going to look at the content of this, I'm going to look at the attributes of the material, and then make a recommendation of an item based on its attributes or its content, if you will. Collaborative filtering says I'm going to use the information from the other people who are interacting with my system and mm-hmm. use their movie watching patterns. You fill in the blank here. This is used for music recommendations, movie recommendations, Amazon, you know, you should buy this product, whatever. Uh, I'm going to look at this big body of lots and lots of people who are interacting with my movie system. And I'm going to use information from other people and the patterns of what they watch to inform what I recommend to you. This sounds very much like Netflix. It is Netflix. Yeah. This is this is Netflix. This, this is, is what Netflix. Netflix does. Yeah. So Netflix is a collaborative filtering setup. And so what they have is a big sparse matrix. If you ever hear about sparse matrices, you hear about them a lot in data science. And it took me a little while to figure out what the big deal was. This is where a sparse matrix comes in. Well, first of all, what is a sparse matrix? A sparse matrix is basically a matrix where some of the values can be empty. Yes. Right. So if I, if you have, uh, like, um, here's an example. If you look at a checkerboard, you've got a bunch of, uh, uh, you've got a bunch of squares and some of those squares have a red piece and some of those squares have a, a black piece or a white piece. And some of them don't have any piece at all. And so depending on the way you decide to represent that board, you could represent each of those uh, pieces or no pieces as a value or not a value. If you did it that way, then you would have this matrix of squares and some of them would be empty. There'd be literally nothing there. That is a very good analogy. Yeah. And so sparse is a little bit of a subjective term because there's differing degrees of sparsity. But hmm. the, what do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. So the checkerboard here is... So you could say that maybe a, a checkerboard or a chessboard is sparse because only a third of the... Or maybe a quarter of the squares have something on them. Mm-hmm. But for something like Netflix, it is, it is the same property, but just much more so. So in the case of Netflix, what you have is a matrix where each row is a user or a customer... Oh, so you might have oh, millions of rows. That's a lot of rows. That's right. And then each column is a movie in the Netflix catalog. So well, tens of thousands whoa. of things. Wait, okay. So you've got millions of users on one axis and tens of thousands or whatever the number is of of uh, movies on the other axis. That is a huge, huge matrix. And I imagine if you, if you imagine uh, me as one of those uh, uh the users were columns let's say in this example i have not watched even close to tens of thousands of movies i've probably watched i don't know 10 movies on netflix other people probably watch a bit more but still the majority of this matrix is emptiness and that's yeah that's the sparsity that we're talking about when we it's call a really it a sparse, sparse. matrix I see. yes and it's very very sparse and um so That is what the raw data looks like. And then what you do is you look for rows that look like they're similar to each other. And there's different ways that you can calculate what similarity means in sort of this representation. But you have an intuitive sense for it. There are two people who seem to be watching the same kinds of stuff. 
Mm. And but they're not going to watch usually exactly the same stuff. Person Ben, uh, I was going to say person A, but let's let's be concrete about <laughs> it. Ben watches um, action movies and rates them very highly. Science fiction movies. Let's be accurate. Okay, science fiction movies. Just just Star Trek. All Star Trek. Okay, so you really like Star Trek. And what's something else that's not Star Trek that you like? Doesn't have to be uh, science fiction. It could be something I, completely different. I don't know. <laughs> Forrest, you Gump, only like Star Forrest Trek. Gump was a nice movie. Okay, perfect. Sure. So, <laughs> so Ben likes Star Trek and Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah. And Katie likes Star Trek and I really like Skyfall. So we'll say Skyfall. So the fact that you and I have a lot of interests in common, namely many, many seasons worth of Star Trek uh, means that we are, are fairly close in terms of distance from each other mm-hmm. and that the other things that I like that you haven't seen are strong possibilities for things that you could like. So oh. in this case, it's saying, oh, somebody who's very similar to you also liked Skyfall. May I recommend to you uh, this wonderful Daniel Craig James Bond oh, movie. I see. I see. Okay. And then likewise, it's going to say to me, oh, there's someone who's very similar to you. Uh, that person really enjoyed Forrest Gump. Why don't you check out Forrest Gump? Got it. So so that's a collaborative uh, recommendation engine. And it doesn't just do that for person Ben and person Katie. It does that for pretty much everyone, let's say on the Netflix platform, if we're using Netflix as the example. Um, it kind of compares these people to each other in a computationally not crazy expensive way and out of that comes every individual user's movie recommendations yeah so it's usually it's usually some combination of your distance from other people that's what it comes to rely on more heavily as you watch more and more movies and you rate them and it gets a sense for your personal preference and then the other thing that usually gets mixed in especially at the beginning when it doesn't know you well is just what's popular right now and it'll try to push that on you as well and just to be clear this collaborative based recommendation engine doesn't know anything at all about the content so it doesn't know like we both like star trek because of uh, you know something in the star trek universe that we really like and you like James Bond because of this thing and there and because there's a similarity it doesn't know anything about that the only thing it knows is that people similar to me in that they've watched a lot of Star Trek maybe have also watched a lot of James Bond and therefore it can it can guess that if i behave similar to an average human yeah then yeah. that'll be a good recommendation for me so that is roughly how recommendation engines work When I was researching this, I was reading about a particularly famous case of a recommendation engine that I actually found completely fascinating. And so I'm going to pivot a little bit now. And we are going to talk about privacy. Oh, (laughs) nice. Okay. Who knew? Yeah. So speaking of Netflix, uh, several years ago, Netflix decided that they were going to make a portion, they were going to anonymize a portion of their, this, this big matrix that they had, and they were going to put it out into the public as uh, the data set that would support a prize. Because Netflix has a very highly developed data science department. They're all about making uh, good recommendations to their users. Um, so this is something that they va- they value very highly. On the other yeah. hand, there's a lot of uh, reason to think that having a competition and allowing other people, you know, the general public to try to make recommendations, the that having many, many hands on the keyboard and competing for some prize money or something could get you something that 
uh, would potentially be better than what you already have, or at the very least be kind of interesting. Oh, definitely. And I actually, um, I don't think you know this, but uh, a couple of years ago, I actually interviewed at Netflix as a front-end engineer. And front-end engineers don't usually have to do a lot of uh, deep algorithmic stuff, but I was asked a good number of algorithm questions because their entire business centers around this kind of collaborat- uh, collaborative recommendation engine. Oh, that's interesting. So they were asking you algorithmic questions about yeah. recommendations? Yeah, yeah. They were like, okay, so imagine this situation. How can we A-B test this or whatever it was? Oh, that's It was really cool. cool. Yeah, that is neat. Uh, yeah, they're all about the uh, the testing and the... Mm-hmm. I think I once heard that Netflix, you know, when you go to Netflix and it has the front page and it's this sort of matrix of all these, you know, the thumbnails of all these movies mm-hmm. that they think you might want to watch that... That matrix, that front page that you see is just constantly being tested. That there is no such thing as the Netflix front page because what every single person sees is different because they're just always testing this stuff. So anywho, so Netflix, they take their recommendations very seriously. And right. that motivated them to, um, like I said, anonymize a set of their uh, a subset of their data, put it out in the public for as, as a, a competition. Right. So they basically took their data and they put it out there. They did. And they anonymized it slight, somewhat. They, like, removed the names and stuff. Yeah, so the anonymization that they did, they took off people's names. Because, they, you know, user privacy is is a significant thing. And we should talk about this in just a second. But let me right. let me talk about the anonymization process that they did. Yeah, sounds good. So what they did was they put out the, the matrix. So there's the rows in the matrix, which each row is going to be a user. And then the columns in the matrix are what movies they watched, uh, when they watched them, and what rating they gave them. And uh, but they didn't have names attached. They didn't have uh, places where anybody lived. They didn't have ages. What about like credit card information? <laughs> oh yeah, no, they they did. They no, it's did. all gone. No, I'm just okay, kidding. so yeah, of course it not. sounds safe. <laughs> so yeah, and it and it it was safe according to some fairly naive uh, ideas that they had um, about privacy of these kinds of data sets. And and yeah, I, when I say naive, like, they weren't being stupid. It was just that. You know, there hadn't been the opportunity to think quite as deeply as as they needed to about this, and I don't yeah. know. It's the topic for another day, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. A lot of so a lot of smart people at Netflix signed off on this, um, but if you're at if you're in a moment in time and you're trying to look into the future, well, there's just no visibility there, and so um, us looking back now. Everything that we take for granted in our current lives seems obvious, right? But it wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to someone five years ago. And the same goes for uh, data anonymization. Yeah, yeah. So you can tell maybe where this is going. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this doesn't sound good. (laughs) Yeah. So the data was out in the wild for several years, actually, and, and people were competing over it for a while. There was actually a team that ended up winning a million-dollar prize for uh, improving upon Netflix's algorithm, although the algorithm that they came up with sounds like was very unwieldy and was never actually used. It was some complicated oh, ensemble thing. So but they, I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask, like, they win a million dollars, but do they get hired at Netflix? I mean, that's a cool place to work. Uh, I don't know that they, I don't know, actually. I don't know. Well, um, anyway, okay, so their algorithm didn't make it into uh, production, as we say. No, but, y- you know, like I said, that I don't know that that was necessarily Netflix's real goal. I think they mostly wanted to learn and to see what people did with the data. So, yeah, yeah, know, whatever. And 
Uh, however, <laughs> one, one thing we did learn from this data, uh, there were some researchers who took a look at it and their question was, is this truly anonymized data or is there some way that we can reverse engineer from this who the people are who are in this Netflix data set? And remember, these are real Netflix users. These are actual you know, people who are out there and uh, they did not uh, sign off on having their data used in this way. So Netflix actually says they have a privacy policy and they're, they're going to try to protect your identity. And, mm-hmm. and they yeah. thought that that's what they were doing. But here's, here's what happened, basically. Is you know how we were talking about how this is a sparse matrix? Yeah. So the thing about sparse matrices and this problem in particular is this is what is called a fat tail problem. And what that means is that on Netflix, you have, if you were to look at something like the distribution of how many users watch a movie, you have your super popular movies. Okay. Those get the plurality of the views, but right. they, they still don't get the majority of the views because there's just comparatively so few complete blockbusters. The oh, huge bulk of the catalog, and in fact, where most of the views are happening in in aggregate is on the less popular shows. Huh. So I, for example, am really into this BBC uh, like detective drama procedural called Poirot, and it's about this. He, he goes to it's this detective, and he goes to dinner parties, and there's a murder, and he solves the murder, and I just find it completely delightful. And I, you'd think people would stop going to dinner parties with him. You know, you know, it's <laughs> funny because I turn to my husband every once in a while at the end of this and, you know, we're in season 11 at this point. Oh, and geez. Just people, <laughs> and people, he just goes to dinner parties and people die. And I'm like, I it's a, at the end of this series, I mean, they're going to, there's going to be a twist. And it's just that he was the murderer all along. I mean, correlation, causation, right? Like, <sighs> Indeed. It's not the same, but at some point... <laughs> Indeed. So okay. as it turns so like out, this. by what we say when we mean the fat tail problem is that a show like Poirot is out in the tails. This is not a particularly popular show. However, this is what I spend a lot of my time watching right now. And that's true of a lot of users, um, mm. is that the there's a lot of watching that happens of these kind of rare shows so any given one of them is not super popular but when you you add them all up that's actually where most of the action is wow okay and you can think of a lot of things like this like i I think the internet is probably the same way there are these really blockbuster sites that a lot of people go to but then there's also a lot of people who spend their time on you know kind of like the smaller sites that are more uh specific to whatever it is they're interested in and that's actually probably where most of the time ends up getting spent yeah, like Memory Alpha. I'm there a lot. That's the Star Trek wiki. Ah, sure. Yeah, perfect. So the thing about sparse matrices and this particular distribution is that it means, not to put too fine a point on it, but it means that everybody's kind of a weirdo. And Oh, so, so me- that's yeah. the consequence of this, is that everybody is actually... A unique snowflake yeah in this data set yeah so even though i don't even watch a lot of netflix it's likely that there's nobody out there who's actually watched the same exact things i have exactly, exactly. and that's ah 
that's the problematic part. Yeah. Is that if everybody is actually pretty unique, that means that this anonymized data, which is just their viewing habits, actually isn't necessarily all that anonymized because everybody has their own their own watching fingerprint, if you will. Yeah, it's very rare that you would find someone who only watches the very, very popular movies and nothing else. Because mm-hmm. And that's what you would need to have somebody who blends in is someone who doesn't ever watch anything that's like a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that just doesn't happen. Like everybody has their kind of strange thing that they watch. And definitely once you start to have people who watch multiple movies, which of course most people do, that exact pattern of I watch a bunch of movies, any given one of them is maybe not that weird, but the combination of them is going to become more and more specific to just me. It's very rare that you have um, people who are going to be overlapping with each other in exactly the same way. And it's probably made even worse by the fact that now Netflix is not just movies, it's largely television shows, and television shows have individual episodes. And so you might miss one of the episodes, and you're prob- you might be one of the few people in the world who saw all of the episodes except for that one episode. Yeah, so there's just that many more sort of measurements that they're making of you, and that many yeah. you know, fewer ways that you could be overlapping exactly with someone else. Okay, so I get how... Everyone has their own fingerprint. What I don't get yet is how can how can some researcher or hacker or whatever take this unique fingerprint and tie it to me, Ben Jaffe? Mm. Ben Jaffe, have you heard of the Internet Movie Database? Uh, no. Internet <laughs> Movie right, Database? That's because you don't watch movies. Um, it's called IMDb. Oh, <laughs> of course. I know. Okay, I know what that is. Right. So IMDb, uh, for those people who are not familiar, is where it's a big database online. It has basically every movie that's ever been made. It doesn't have the movies themselves, but it has metadata about them. So it'll say, it'll have synopses, and it'll have all the actors and the director and the writer, and people like to go in and they enter their ratings. Um, uh-huh. People make accounts on IMDb. <sighs> Very often they use their real names because, you know, they might not care that much. Um, And Oh, no, I see where this is going. So what you have is you have a set of movies that people are rating on IMDb. Uh, You have their ratings and you also have the... Their name. The date also. Yeah, and their name. And you can take that list and then you match it against what's in Netflix. And this is a little bit actually of an interesting process to do that matching because Uh there isn't perfect overlap between what's in IMDb and what's in Netflix. Netflix only has a subset of all the movies ever made. Similarly, people might Like I might go to the movie theater instead. They might go see it on the movie theater instead. They might rate something. You write it on Netflix as soon as you finish it, and then you log into IMDb a month later and you rate it then and maybe you forget Mm -hmm. that you really liked it and so you give it a different rating. Netflix, in addition, I think had tried to add a little bit of random noise to their data set or I'm not sure if they did actually, but this is fairly standard procedure for anonymizing data is that you take it and you you flip some of the you flip some of the bits or you smear things out a little bit. And so it might not be literally the exact data, but it's, you know, reasonably faithful. So that could be going on as well. All of these things make the matching a little bit more difficult. However, because people's fingerprints are just so unique, you're able to make the bridge that way. And so what they did was they had this um, matching procedure. 
and you basically set a threshold. You say, what's the, how willing am I to get a false positive? And based on that, it'll be more or less stringent on whether it matches someone. Uh, they did some testing where they would put someone in, someone, someone who they knew was in the database, not a, a literal person, but like a row that was, they knew was in the Netflix database. And they would try to match a fairly similar row that they had constructed to look like that row and make sure that it could, f their algorithm could actually find it in the Netflix database. So they knew that it was capable of finding a row if it was there. Then what they did was they took out the target row from the data set um, and then tried to find the same row again. So now they know that it's not there and verified that in that case, the algorithm would, would properly return, you know, that there were no matches found. So mm -hmm. that was the way that they guarded against false positives and, and got a sense for um, how distinct people would be like, you know, okay, so if there's a person who isn't in there, it's still going to return a best match, but that best match just isn't going to be very good. And so what does it look like when we found like a really good match versus one that's just kind of like, eh, I guess I'll give you this, but it's, right. it's not great. And so they downloaded not very many profiles from IMDB. I think they said it was something like 30. So 30 real people. Okay. Uh, just 30 random real people. 30 random real people with the hypothesis that maybe somewhere in this set of 30, you know, some of those people might be in this Netflix data set. Uh, they don't know for sure, of course. Um, and what they found was that there were two hits that were extremely significantly, uh, statistically significant in the sense mm -hmm. that it was very, very rare that you would get just a random coincidence of events such that this wouldn't be actually the person who we think it is. Um, so they were that's able to very really clearly high. match up. That's like, that's almost 10% of IMDb users. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm extrapolating from a sample size of 30, but still, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main thing they were trying to do was like a proof of principle that this could right. even happen. Right. But they were able to find two users who... Uh, had fairly, you know, like we all do, they had fairly distinctive viewing patterns. And one of the things that they pointed out, and this I think is an important thing to keep in mind, it, the data was anonymized. And a lot of times in anonymization processes, there's kind of this assumption that there's data that can be used to identify you. It's things like mm -hmm. your name, date of birth, zip code. And then there's information that is sensitive. And that's things like credit card numbers, personal health information, emails, that sort of thing. And yeah. so the idea is that the stuff that's used to identify you and the stuff that's sensitive are not necessarily the same data. In fact, before this, the assumption had been that they're not the same data. So you, you can have the sensitive stuff out there just as long as you don't have the identifying information attached, you should be okay. And what they were able to show in this case is that sometimes it's the it's the sensitive stuff that can be used to identify you. And, and that was something that hadn't been seen before. So what that yeah. means in this context is that people, the, the movies that you watch, the entertainment that you choose mm -hmm. to partake in and your opinions on that entertainment could actually be very sensitive. It can give you, it can give someone who's looking at it a lot of ideas about your political leanings, about your, yeah, yeah. You know, and all, all kinds I actually want to take a sec to take a big step back and talk about the much bigger picture, which is, you know, we talk about the important, 
the importance of privacy in this increasingly digital crazy age. And and like you were saying, we kind of have this assumption that some data is personal and private or sensitive and some data just isn't, right? Like, I, I don't really care if my viewing habits anonymized get out there. But that's not necessarily the point. That's kind of missing the point. The point is that all data is potentially uh, incriminating or sensitive or private when it's matched with other data. And we're very loose with the data that we put out there. Like IMDb, who would think that that could be part of an attack vector to identify you and your, you know, your habits on Netflix, or even the fact that you very likely have a Netflix account. Yeah, I think that was something that wasn't fully appreciated until mm-hmm. uh, specifically this Netflix uh, thing yeah, happened. And was... it wasn't it wasn't part of an attack. It was a research project, and Netflix was oh, very sure. was very responsible and, and took it down right away. And in fact, you Absolutely. can't you can't find the Netflix data online anymore because they you know take take their users' privacy very seriously. I I do want to say, though, that despite the fact that it wasn't an attack, it could have very easily been an attack. Yeah. And so I guess looking at this particular incident, it's important to distinguish and say, like, this was a research project. Uh, But looking at the perspective that we tend to take towards privacy as a population, I don't think there's much of a difference between a proof of concept or like, for example, a white hat hacker and a black hat hacker, a hacker with positive intentions versus a hacker with negative intentions. Like they're effectively the same because it's proof that this could be happening and you don't even know it, right? Oh, yeah. And I think in this case, it was it was also important because like you said, it was the proof of concept. It was showing right. for the first time that this principle could be used as soon as you start to get something like a sparse matrix this is much more of a problem for something like netflix where you have this sparse matrix and where people are very distinctive in the in the data that even shows up for them if you have something that's much more if you're just like a spreadsheet of people who live in a city and their ages and their you know i don't know religions and yeah that's very and whatever then then that actually there's ways that you can make that fairly robust and um, we can go into that some other time. Um, But yeah, once you are aware of sort of the structural aspects of the problem that make it susceptible to these kinds of vectors, yeah, they demonstrated that this can be in fact very effective. Um, So yeah, and it's, it's been taken much more seriously ever since. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.